Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Now, before we get going here on this episode, I wanted to introduce a new option for you guys. So some of you have been asking me, how can I support your show? And uh, just millions of you have been asking me this. But uh, I added a Patreon account, so... If you're impatient like me and you want to get the episodes as soon as I record them, go over to Patreon. Um, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Go click on my Patreon, become a supporter. If you support this show for $5 a month, you get this Parker's Pensy sticker and you get instant access to all the episodes the day I record them. Uh, if not, if you're patient, unlike me, uh, and you can wait for the episodes to appear, then uh, just wait on the, on the normal uh, listing and I will release them one to two, maybe three podcast episodes a week. Uh, if if not, again, if, if you want them all, uh, go over and, and support the show on Patreon. But uh, enough prostituting myself out. Let's get to today's guest. Today I have with me Michael Jehoski. He is an assistant professor of humanities at St. Peter's, St. Petersburg College in Clearwater, Florida, and he's been teaching there for 10 years. He's also active in a local church that... Uh, He's been attending for seven years, teaching classes on apologetics, and he's also been involved in campus ministry clubs on and off for the past 10 years. His academic background is in classical and biblical history, philosophy, theology, and the arts. Michael earned a master's degree in humanities from the University of South Florida and is author of The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Michael, thanks for being with us, man. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it, and I definitely want a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We can make that happen. Yeah, great. So, Happy to be here. So you, you're a humanities professor, and it, it shows up in your work because your work is a little hard to classify. You know, it, I was thinking about this yeah. as a work of apologetics, cultural apologetics, literary criticism, philosophy, theology. Is Does it fit nicely into one of these categories? Is it more interdisciplinary? How do you think about your work? I was just trying to look to see on the back of the cover if they classified it uh, just to see what Wiffenstock had done. But, you know, I, I was uh, greatly inspired by, um, you know, Paul Gould's uh, recent cultural apologetic approach to uh, looking at apologetics. And so I would definitely include it in that genre. Hmm. Um, I mean, what we're looking at is, you know, three books. I mean, I, I talk about The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion. We kind of work backwards through my book. Um, that is a part of um, Western culture, I mean, world culture. So I think it definitely classifies as a work of cultural apologetics. Hmm. Um, Alistair McGrath has been um, publishing along with Holly Ordway in uh, literary apologetics. It might fit in that niche. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it is kind of cross dis- you know, crossing disciplines, definitely an interdisciplinary work. I do uh, lay that out in uh, the preface or the introduction, one of the two, you know, I say, this is my background. You know, I'm not, I didn't go to seminary. Uh, I think Dallas Willard once said something like, you know, if you go to the university first, seminary is open to you. But if you go to seminary, sometimes it's harder to go back in. Yeah, totally. So I've always, I think it was Dallas Willard who said that and uh, great, great book, The Divine Conspiracy. So, you know, I feel like this is my, 
humanities profession in a, in a book. So it's definitely more interdisciplinary, but I think it fits in some of the other popular works we're seeing in apologetics today. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I, I, I really enjoyed it. So I highly just, Thank you. I highly recommend it just to, to begin here again, it's called the good news of the return of the King and it's the gospel in middle earth. Ta-da. There it is. Boom. Yes. So Michael, why write this book now? Uh, you know, why th- write this book at all? Yeah. So I've actually uh, been thinking a lot about that and uh, I do lay out the story in the preface, but um, as selfish as it sounds, and I hope it doesn't come off the wrong way, but I, I really wrote the book for myself in many ways because uh, the Holy Spirit kind of was guiding me in 2001 to kind of um, you know think about what it meant to be a Christian. I tell the story about how I came to write the book in the preface, and I can get into that a little bit, but uh, it didn't choose to write it in this time in any particular way. Um, it's certainly, we're seeing a lot of books and apologetics being released nowadays, but yeah. Um, I've been, what I realize now in retrospect is when I started the book formally, I think in 2015, the book kind of started working on me or me working on the book back when I was, you know, a kid in 2001. Um, but I, I I wrote it back to my original point for myself because I wanted to explain what the Lord of the Rings was doing to me. Mm. And what I essentially discovered was that, uh, I had heard the gospel, unbeknownst to me first in middle earth. uh, And then I learned that I was not the only person who had this experience, which was a really great revelation. Um, I learned that once I started researching for the book. And so in many ways um, it's just a kind of a self discovery. And I wanted to share, um, you know, I I guess it's kind of a book for everybody, but indirect communication in general is really uh, as apologists know, really great for people who are on the fence, who are unbelievers or skeptics and seekers. And so it's definitely a book mainly for them. And for anybody who's felt that they've been moved by Tolkien's mythology in particular, uh, and again, just to make sense of what was going on in my walk as a Christian uh, a disciple of Christ, I should say. Uh, and that's that's the primary reason. And hoping that other people have felt the same way. And I think, you know, you and I both know a lot of folks have. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome, man. So as a, um, a lot of my uh, listeners will know, I love to start with some definitions of stuff. And I was yeah. excited in your book to find all these definitions of parables, supposals, allegory, you know, worldview, myth. Um, mm-hmm. I, I particularly liked your your treatment of worldview, but uh, we can get Thank to that in a, in a second. So yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I want to just go through a couple of those if you, if sure. you don't mind here. So Not at all. Yeah. What, what's, a, what's a parable? Yeah. So, uh, you know, parables, let's say what they're not first. Uh, the traditional understanding of a parable uh, in the words of N.T. Wright is an earthly story with heavenly meanings, very platonic story. You know, as uh, as listeners will know, most likely there's there is a lot of overlap with Platonism, uh, Neoplatonism as well with Christianity. But, you know, two things that have one thing in common don't have all things in common. Uh, you know, there are some similarities there and and certainly parables have supernatural elements to them. Um, but uh, unlike Platonism, you know, the Jewish worldview underpinning the parables is a holistic sort of view of the world. And so they're, um, they are informed what they mean to say in content is what I repeat throughout the book is kind of a beat to the, to the book to have you understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we definitely need to understand the Jewish context behind parable and we'll get into that. Uh, back to basic definitions, though, um, you know, so a parable is not an earthly story with heavenly meanings, um, okay. although heaven and earth do figure into this. It's not that way. Uh, they're not short moral stories uh, or, or short stories um, with a moral point, you know, how to be a good boy or girl. Uh, 
Amy Jill Levine, uh, Levine, excuse me, has written a great book on on the parables recently called Short Stories by Jesus. It's a really good one, hmm. and uh, it's a somewhat recent. And uh, she um, she talks about the challenging aspects of the parables, and we'll get into that. But back to back to what I was saying, uh, parables um, literally mean to throw from the side. Para and balain, uh, so the two words parabole form this um, kind of what uh, I think Dickinson said to tell it slant. And I, I have an Emily Dickinson reference in the book. Uh, she's got a short poem all about how we have to tell the truth slant, and that's what parables do. They uh, they cast alongside, they they juxtapose, they create a resemblance between two unlike things to show yeah. that in fact they do have something in common, and in this case, kind of heaven and earth. Um, and so to throw from the side or to, to cast alongside is the basic definition of a parable. Okay. Would, would you say it's uh, it's more indirect than direct? Definitely. Okay. You However, yeah, no, no, I would. Um, but there, there are uh, direct elements to a parable and that I, I will submit are the allegorical elements. And we'll get into that. I'm sure in due time, allegory is such a, <laughs> such a loaded <laughs> concept, right? Oh man, I didn't know what I was getting into when I was researching this book, but uh, yeah, it, it is definitely indirect, and we can speak to that if you want a little bit about indirect communication. But yeah, yes. well, so I always, um, you know, when you talk about parables as a Christian, you always think parables of Christ, right? Naturally. And I wonder, um, I just, I haven't done any research on this, but it just popped in my head, you know, with with um, Samuel's coming to David, and he's and he's saying, uh, you know, here's a story about this guy, and he uh, he's a king, he's rich, he had a bunch of sheep, but he goes and takes this dude's lamb uh, for his visitor, and David gets all upset, and he's like, this man should pay fourfold, you know? He's in, he goes, you are the man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that is that a parable or is that something else? I think uh, my research. Uh, Brad Young wrote a book on the the Jewish um, kind of background of the parables that I, I have in the bibliography, and I think he classifies that. And this gets us into the Hebrew word for for parable, which is mashal, okay. plural mashalim. Mashal is such a multivalent term. I mean, it can mean or polyvalent term. It can mean riddle or a challenge or a dark saying or a parable or an allegory or a metaphor or a simile. It's such a <laughs> It's all of those things at once. So I think he classifies that uh, Nathan and David. Uh, it could be. It's definitely a parable. It has a a pointed end. You know, mm-hmm. uh, certainly it's a challenge parable. We'll talk about that later. I know it's yep. on the outline, uh, or a parable with a challenge in it. It has a has some teeth to it. Uh, yeah, I would say um, parables are not determined by their length. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. We have book length parables. I think. Um, uh, the book of uh, Ruth is a good one, a good example about the, was it the great grandmother of David? I think she was Ruth. Uh, and Bo, I, think I Ruth just, was. I just read this in the old Testament. I don't know yeah. uh, that the lineage, I don't remember if she was great grandma or, or just grandma. related. Yeah. In a, yeah. In a close way. Um, the book of Job has been submitted by many to be a book length parable. And so you have, you know, Lord, Lord of the Rings is a, a parabolic novel as one scholar has called it. And so you can have parables that are two sentences or, 2000 words or 2000 pages. Um, it depends on what really how the story affects us and the way that language is used. And, uh, and beyond that also that the underpinned, uh, the worldview underneath it, I think. Um, but yeah, it's not determined by length. So I would say it could be classified as a parable, okay. but, um, uh, I have to say what he says in that book. But anyway, yes. It could yeah. Be. Yeah. I, I really like that. That's a great point that parables, um, don't have to be just tiny little short little stories. They can be, and and what you make in your book, you, you make the argument that the Lord of the Rings uh, is a parable, or at least the, the return of the king. Yeah. And I, I wonder, so going back to to Plato, you made an interesting point earlier, a poem from N.T. Wright. Um, do, you, mm-hmm. 
do you think so are plato's dialogues are they are would they be classified as parables or not quite i may not have the academic background to comment on plato's works in particular i think yeah. there's been a variety of different opinions on this but uh, certainly we know the allegory of the cave which is uh what book 10 of the republic i think yeah. uh, you know which is the most famous dialogue and work of plato arguably timaeus the laws all of those others that we know euthyphro mm -hmm. which is one of my favorites um, I would certainly say that, I mean, I'm thinking of the Euthyphro dilemma and, and that dialogue definitely in a sense is a, is a parable or, you know, an extended Socratic dialogue. Obviously we know it to be. Um, and, and this gets into indirect communication I mean, Socratic yeah. dialogue is a game of hide and seek really mm -hmm. is what it is. And, and that's uh, that's not my wording. Uh, Benson P. Fraser just wrote a book recently uh, called, uh, I think hide and seek. And it's all about indirect communication and I, I highly recommend it. Uh, and I think it's a great way to put it. And so I think that they could be considered that way. Sure. Okay. I, um, yeah, I, I love that. I, I love, um, I, I, I wrote a paper on uh, biblical uh, wisdom and like a biblical theology of wisdom. And I looked at Job and I, as I read Job uh, a couple of times through it, it seemed mm -hmm. to me like Job's just a, a proto Platonic dialogue on the, the nature of uh, God's justice and, wow. uh, you know, theodicy. And yeah. he's got yeah. Job and he's got his characters in there and he's even got his yeah. friends coming through and no, that's not right. And then God answers from the whirlwind and, oh, that's great. Uh, and I love that. And I think that indirect communication, um, it, it happens all throughout scripture, right? It's, it's, there's, there's some propositions in there for sure. Uh, absolutely. A lot of it's storytelling, a lot of, in, in, in the stories, there's parables, which are like sub stories. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so I really like that. I, I love I love what she did with that that connection. Uh, I I see it now. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, many scholars have pointed out. I mean, it, a bunch of them in my bibliography. Brian Godawa wrote a book uh, about about this too, about sacred uh, communication or indirect communication. And yeah. I think he he measured it basically. But it's like seventy percent of the Bible, something to that extent, is is uh, not proposition, but it's mythos, it's narrative, and therefore indirect communication. So imagery. Uh, mashalim, right? Uh, riddles, parables, allegories, uh, you know, dark sayings, proverbs are in there as well um, that are considered. I forgot to mention those. So certainly, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. So mm -hmm. um, moving on, how about supposals? Is that uh, is that a Tolkien word or is that only Lewis no. or is that between the two? I, I could not find any uh, synergy between Tolkien and Lewis on this, as, as, as most listeners will probably know, and I know you know that they were good friends for at least most of their uh, life from the early um, to mid late 1920s. I think I'm sorry, mid to late 1920s into the 1950s. And I don't think Tolkien ever borrowed the term, but it is a, a Lewis term. Okay. And uh, my most uh, recent recollection of the use of the term supposal comes from uh, several of Lewis's letters to fans and collected letters of C.S. Lewis. You can find Kindle editions or hardcover editions. Uh, I could find in my my endnotes somewhere the exact letter. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, readers and listeners can find it pretty easily. I'd be happy to hunt it down for you. But, yeah, he um, he says that supposal is set against allegory and that they're not the same thing. And I think uh, we, we'll get into that, but it's the way that uh, language is used and the alteration or alternation, excuse me, between allegorical language and metaphorical language. And as I'll point out later, um, a, a strict allegory, which Lewis and Tolkien both uh, disliked and set against the parable fairy story supposal on the other side, uh, is very heavy handed. It's very clear allegorical language and allegorical composition are there to help remind you of what you already know. 
they're not there to advance any knowledge. Mm. And so it, it's a story that's thinly guised to tell you what you already know. And you think of, um, but I always mess this up. My wife's going to crack up if I say it wrong. Is it John Bunyan's uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress? I think I almost said Paul Bunyan, and that would yeah. have been <laughs> yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah, Paul had so, the big blue uh, bowl or whatever, water <laughs> buffalo. Right. And uh, you know, this is a, a, a typical example. And I think there are some Louisian examples in the Chronicles of Narnia, but there's a giant called Despair. And you know, one guesses to what he is. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, that's you already know what that's like as a Christian. You've had struggles. And so that kind of story, which is very allegorical, is that there to tell you what you already know. Mm-hmm. So supposal, I think, was to come back to the point, was Lewis's version of what I would say is Tolkien's fairy story and both the supposal mm. and the fairy story, I think are analogous to, or at least very similar to uh, the new Testament parable. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so Lewis is using the word supposal and Tolkien's right. using fairy story. Yep. And, and just to, to finish real quick, I just have a few other blurbs about a supposal. So Lewis basically describes it as a hypothetical, what if scenario of what mm. if Christ were a lion and uh, what would that show us, you know, where there's not an exact correspondence. And as, as readers and listeners will know, you know, that uh, uh, if you've read the, the Chronicles of Narnia, not all of the correspondences are clear. Some of them break down between Aslan and, and Jesus Christ. So um, it's a hypothetical what if story. You know, what if we looked at the gospel in this way? Come over here and change your perspective and inhabit the story that you know so well in a different light. Yeah. What would it look like if we did that? And he's adding, he's adding new information from the what if kind of supposal, right? So it's, it's a little bit different than allegory. And there's that, yes. yeah, there's not that direct obvious one-to-one uh, correlation. I think exactly. Lewis also, I love Lewis. I've, I've read, you know, most of Lewis. Um, I, I love Tolkien, uh, but there's, there's more to Lewis. Like there's more, like I have all his letters and everything, you know, I don't yeah. have all yeah. Tolkien. Um, but I, he does this kind of supposal thing with his space trilogy where he's like, well, what if the, uh, what if Adam and Eve took place, uh, on, on Venus, right. you know, in a different place? What if, you know, it's not direct one-to-one. It's not, ex- it's not the same story happening over, but it's like that. What would happen exactly. if that's, that's exactly, uh, right. And I, I haven't read, uh, in full the, um, uh, Paralandra is it the, the space trilogy? I think it's referred yeah. to. Uh, I haven't been meaning to get into it, but I did come across some bits and pieces in my research. But yeah, I can see that. Uh, and it's not the same. I mean, and so one of the things we can talk about is it's the degree to which the author wants you to trace. And I'm, I'm standing on the shoulder of great scholars here who have already said this. It's the degree to which the author wants you to trace the allegorical correspondence between the thing you're experiencing and, and the reality it's pointing to. Yeah. If it's, if it's clear and translucent, you know, again, it's not going to teach you much and you're going to say, Oh uh, yeah, that, that means that one way of saying that. But if it's, if it's more like um, how did uh, Sally McFaig wrote a book about this and said, if it's more thick, like a painting, it, you can't see through it, you know, you get this reflection, but not a quite mm. like a resemblance. And so, so it was a really great, um, wow way to put it, the window versus painting, you know, and, and that yeah. really, it just clicked. It made sense. And I think that uh, Lewis um, to his credit was not always very clearly allegorical. Right. I, I think sons and daughters of Adam and Eve obviously is one example where it is, but um, you think of, you know, Aslan's country is um, very Jewish and very platonic and it kind of gets, gets you guessing in different directions. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure if we sat here and thought about it, there are lots of examples in the books where uh, it's not exactly the same way that we know it in the Gospels. Right, right. And adds totally. to 
it as you said. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Well, we've been, we've been kind of circling around this, but let's get into allegory then. Uh, yeah. You can see all sorts of uh, great memes online between Tolkien and, uh, and <laughs> Lewis. And, you know, there, I just saw this, this recent one, maybe, maybe we both saw it um, uh-huh. where, where Tolkien's like, you know, I, I, I don't like, allegory don't don't how dare you say that yeah. uh, lord of the rings is about world war one uh, or two or whatever right. and then right. lewis is is at the bar saying like if if somebody does if one person even doesn't get that that the big lion is jesus then i'll set yeah. myself on fire right and right. there's all right. these like common conceptions that lewis loved allegory and tolkien hated it so i'm hoping to clear some of that up but real quick sure. what what is allegory so every word we use is an allegory, and the Greek word allegoria is again a compound word, uh, alos, and uh, I think um, I forget the second word, but uh, agoria. I think it has to do with the marketplace, uh, the agora. Uh, I think it has some connection there, and it basically means to speak of one thing as another, or to see as, or to talk uh, as uh, at a substitutionary level. Now, you could make a case that metaphorain, the Greek word, another compound metaphor, is also very similar to that, and that these are just ways of saying the same thing. But a lot of scholars that I researched make a distinction between metaphor and allegory. Others don't. And so it depends on who you're reading. But back to allegoria is, you know, one thing as another. And so uh, Joseph Pierce, a great uh, Catholic Tolkien scholar, has written that every word is an allegory, right? Mm. We don't have direct access to reality. We have to everything is kind of indirect, even scientific rational discourses, which we treat. So, uh, you know, um, like, like it's the, the, the only way to know reality today, we give it right. primacy, but it, it isn't, uh, by the way, Tolkien's got a great line about that in the Lord of the Rings through his, through his narrative. But anyway, um, allegory at its basic level is, um, is to speak of one thing as another. Hmm. Uh, and, and yet, from there, it gets into distinguishing between allegoresis, which is a, a interpreting something as allegory, and oftentimes not um, reading something correctly, like you know, Origen, the early church father, um, who was famous for his allegorical interpretations, mm-hmm. um, engaged in allegoresis. And so, some scholars will say that you can say allegory is not even a literary genre; it's a it's an interpretive hermeneutic act. Yeah. Uh, it gets wacky from here. And then you have people who say, well, there's a difference between allegory as composition or genre and allegory as a mode, as a way of using language. And I'm going to give some clarity on that and I'll use my hands to kind of make an illustration uh, because it will help, I think. And I know those who are not watching the video or just listening, you know, have to kind of close your eyes or maybe draw a chart. Um, but we're just starting slow right now. But yeah. uh, there it is. Yeah, that's that's allegory. Well, so there's this kind of popular trope, um, and and maybe maybe it's uh, warranted or justified that Tolkien would hated allegory. He he yeah, took yeah. he took Lewis to task because he thought Lewis was just playing with his toys and Chronicles of Narnia is adding in all these things, and he doesn't quite care for allegory, and Lewis does. And then um, you know, like Jared C. Wilson, um, it, it wrote a great article saying that you know the Lord of the or, um, Chronicles of Narnia are not allegory, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know there's. Depending on what you mean by allegory, Lewis only wrote one allegorical uh, piece, and that was the Pilgrim's Regress. But um, sure. you know, this is, these are fuzzy concepts today in our modern uh, parlance. And I, what I Very appreciated fuzzy. from from your uh, maybe it was in your introduction, but you said that there's there's Tolkien did say that he didn't like uh, allegory, but then yet he he did use allegory. Can can you help us with that? 
yeah, very fuzzy. So again, uh, I think part of the confusion, I'll just cut right to the chase and then I'll, I'll go into what he actually says, which are all in his letters for the most part. Okay. Um, I think part of the confusion arises from not distinguishing allegory as composition or genre on the one hand, okay. and on the other hand, as a mode that is a way of using language in a poetic work. Uh, but the whole work may not be dominated by that mode, but it includes it. Yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, allegory as mode uh, versus allegory as genre slash composition. I, I think that Tolkien's hatred or, or d- dislike, strong, cor- he cordially dislikes it in the forward to the second edition of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, allegory and all of its manifestations, he says. But then elsewhere, he's going to contradict this. So what is he talking about? Well, is he talking about allegory as composition or in genre or allegory as mode? Based on other, if you take that text in isolation from the forward to the Lord of the Rings, then you're going to think, whatever, he just hates allegory. <laughs> but, but that's, and, and you could, and I've seen books that, and scholars who have just wrapped it up and said, well, there you have it, folks. That's, it's not that simple. Um, elsewhere uh, in the letters of uh, correspondence co- com- composed by and arranged by Humphrey Carpenter, who also wrote a biography of J.R.R. Tolkien, he, he says uh, several other things. He says, any interpretation of any poetic work is going to inevitably use allegorical language. Okay. And then elsewhere, he says, the Lord of the Rings is not a allegory of atomic power, but of power as domination. So he says, it's an allegory. It's just not a, it's not about what you think it is. You've drawn the wrong correspondence. So he calls Mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings an allegory. He just says, it's not an allegory of what you think it is, what so many readers and, and writers writing into him, thought it was. And then even elsewhere, he makes the case, and you have to kind of put this together, that um, fairy story, and you can read this in his letters and on, on fairy stories, if you do the research, and I showed in the book, that what he says of his kind of allegory and what he says of, of fairy story is very close together. And so I'm going to put all this together mm-hmm. later for you, but um, definitely some all over the place language from Tolkien uh, but I think it arises from that failure to make a distinction between composition and genre and mode. Um, yeah, there's more that's to a say. very helpful. That's such a helpful uh, uh, classification there. So yeah. you could yeah. you could say like, yeah, I just don't like the genre of allegories because they're kind of childish and they're so on the nose and there's obvious and yet still use an use an allegory in your uh, science fiction. You know, so it's not it's it's a different genre, but you're still using it as a tool, as a mode of expressing something. You're just not ballooning it up to the full category and saying this. I'm writing this piece in the genre of allegory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and then even from there, um, he says one other thing. And that's right. I think it is a helpful distinction, but we can even go deeper and, and, mm-hmm. and eventually simpler. We'll put all this together. But I just remembered that elsewhere in his letters, he says and I remind readers of this in my book several times, just so you don't lose track of it, that he uh, specifically disliked only one kind of allegory, which was he he dubbed it the conscious and intentional kind, as you said, kind of mm. on the nose. Yeah. So there he's definitely targeting allegory as um, not mode, but as genre and composition. He says, I hate books or dislike books that all together, when you consider a whole work, you take one book, it just screams clear on the nose allegory. That I don't like, but yeah. he elsewhere c- commits to saying the Lord of the Rings is a type of allegory, just not that kind. Mm-hmm. And he says that allegorical language is inevitable in writing a story. The yeah. more life he says a story has, the more easily it's going to be to read, um, you know, and trace an allegorical correspondence. So you can't not write an allegory to some extent. 
Yeah. Um, but you can prevent it from being the obnoxious kind. And that is what I would submit he does. And I, maybe I was hard on Lewis because he's not the subject of my book in my book. But I think, you know, to his credit, he, he's often very elusive, just like Tolkien is. But elsewhere, he's very clear. And so there is a difference between the writers. And I think that's where Tolkien had the problem. I think that uh, Tolkien disliked some parts of the Chronicles because uh, it broke into a very clear allegorical mode. And that started to add up to making the whole work seem like right. a simple retelling of a story we already know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, guys like, I think it's Michael Ward, something Ward. I think it's Michael Ward would Michael say, Ward, yeah. he said, you know, so, yeah, Tolkien just didn't get what, what was happening. That uh, mm-hmm. Lewis was, you know, he was telling uh, a story about the seven heavens. And mm-hmm. so, you know, maybe, maybe some, some of the breakdown was there, but. Um, I agree. And Michael Ward's uh, Planet Narnia book is what yep. I think you're thinking of. Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent book. Nobody saw that. I mean, he uncovered such a, a medieval vision behind those books. And uh, I certainly think there's much more to it than most people, uh, maybe including myself for a time, gave credit for. So, yeah, I think we should be a little less hard on Lewis. But, mm-hmm. you know, then again, I think um, Lewis made a comment. It's in the book where he might have been, uh, according to one author, talking about Tolkien. And Lewis said something like, one whose work in which the Christianity is latent may do yeah. more of a better job than one uh, in whose Christianity is more explicit. And he was making a contrast or a comparison rather to maybe to himself and Tolkien. So maybe Lewis was self-conscious. I don't know. Yeah. There are real good Lewis scholars out there like Michael Ward and Alistair McGrath who would know better than I would. Um, but anyway, that's another subject maybe for another talk. It's great. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I that that uh, that latent piece I, I wanted to bring up. Uh, so I'm I'm just gonna go off of our outline here. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully not too far, but so this is interesting because um, to me it always seemed like you know growing up my my dad read the Lord of the Rings to me before the movies came out so we could watch the movies together and absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. And then we would pick up on certain motifs and you know you'd see Gandalf. Uh, spoilers, I guess. Uh, he would die and come back as Gandalf the White, and, right. and you see, like, there's some kind of Christ motifs there. But mm-hmm. it seemed, it always seemed to me like, yeah, there's this some kind of latent Christianity. There's like latent Christian motifs in there, and that, and that I made that connection with Lewis. That yeah, that's what Lewis was doing in his in his more science fictiony stuff. Though he was more on the nose than Tolkien. But what you're arguing in your book is, and, and maybe this is wrong, but that. Tolkien was a bit of a Christian apologist. Is that is that fair to, to say? Yeah, I think so. Um, I wouldn't be probably the first. I mean, I have to think of who else. I want to be respectful of other scholars sure, who might sure. point this out. I can't recall. I, I don't want to certainly take credit for having said it first, but maybe um, recently a scholar, um, myself, to, to point it out more clearly that, yes, he was a um, an apologist, and I think – you know, we define an apologist as one who defends the faith in an intellectual and an imaginative way that engages both the heart and the mind. And I think Tolkien certainly does that. And yet he was not the prodigious uh, theological writer that Lewis was, um, layman though he was as far as, you know, no seminary training. But, you know, Lewis's background speaks for itself. I mean, he was qualified to write on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think maybe Tolkien um, – somewhere I remember reading this might've begrudged him this and felt, you know, Whoa, you're the well-to-do apologist. And here's me, you know, laboring away at this perfectionist mythology. Um, I certainly think he wasn't, you know, uh, announcing this, but I think he, he was a very humble, you know, in my notes, I, I answering your outline here, I, I said to myself, you know, I think, yeah, he was very reserved 
and uh, guarded and humble apologist, but he nevertheless was. And I think part of the, the uniqueness of my book uh, that I'm building on one of Tolkien's very good friends who um, Tolkien confided in, he was a Jesuit uh, priest uh, who already picked up on this, that Tolkien knew the art of the parable. Father Robert Murray, uh, who delivered a sermon in 1992 celebrating 100 years of, of Tolkien's birth and uh, gave a, a sermon entitled that. And I, it's an essay that I included in my book. And um, he makes the case that that is how we should understand Tolkien as an apologist. He was a, an art. He knew the art of the parable. And I talk about what that is throughout my book. And I think that qualifies him as, a, as an apologist because Jesus, as we know, was um, an apologist extraordinaire and, and used parables uh, you know, a third of the Gospels are, 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 I think, parables, especially the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so, yeah, I think he was definitely. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that. And and it does kind of shift my perspective a little bit on the, the latent aspect that maybe it wasn't just because he's a Christian, he writes with Christian motifs, but maybe it was a little bit more intentional. And um, yeah. I wanted to, to, to finish up on our definitional stuff and then we can really jump in. So, sure, sure. Um, Maybe we can touch on uh, mythos, myth, mm-hmm. token conception, and and fairy stories. Certainly, um, yeah. So, can you, wh- just what is a wh- what's the ancient conception of myth versus the modern, and then um, how should we think about myth? Yeah, let me address that, but then also give you that little visual chart and kind of describe how we can wrap all this up. Yeah, um, please. If you don't mind, I'll do that first, and then I'll kind of tie it up yeah. with what you asked about myth. Yeah. So um, if you imagine a spectrum, and, and I, I submit this argument in my book that, you know, you can either make the case that uh, Tolkien operated from a, uh, a classification of parables or a classic classification or genre of, of allegories. And you have to really pick one. And anything you can say that parables do, allegories do too. And so I, I take the evidence and I say, okay, let's pick one. Let's say there are many different kinds of allegory rather than parable. Let's say that's the category. We have a spectrum of allegories. So now we, we have a clear definition. This is what I'm going with. On one end of the spectrum, you have the allegory uh, the, uh, of composition, right? That is in every facet of that story, it is knit together to have not only the mode of allegory, the way the language is used is very direct and very clear and very seldom is the story ever um concealing anything, right? Yeah. And and this is very clearly in composition and in mode, a thoroughly thoroughgoing allegorical story. And then we would just, we would call this on the one end of the spectrum, the conscious and intentional allegory. That's what Tolkien called it. And that's the mm-hmm. one he dislikes. Yep. You call it a crude allegory too. That's what uh, Joseph Pierce has called it. And I agree. It's just, it's in your face. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, in this model I'm using, that is a, a typology or a, a a classification of allegories. Another kind of allegory is the parable, the New Testament parable. Uh, and there we find, you know, a story that um, we've already talked about what parable is mm-hmm. that does have the allegorical mode. Certainly there are familiar aspects and types in the story of the parables of Jesus that lure you into participation and, and, you know, you recognize these elements, but then there's a twist and we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, but um, the twist is the shift from allegorical language or mode to metaphorical language or mode. Mm. And the difference is that metaphor is a suggestive of what it's hinting at. It's not, it's not exact like allegory. It's more indirect. And so the parables are differentiated from the other end of the, the allegorical spectrum from their, um, their back and forth, their hide and seek, the conceal to reveal the uh, shift between the allegorical uh, direct language and the metaphorical indirect language. 
and the and you might just say this as the the shift and alternation between the familiar and the strange yeah. in Jesus' parables and in Tolkien's. Now, on this other end of the spectrum, we've been talking about the parable. It can also be pointed out based on research of Tolkien's fairy story. And this essay that I said Tolkien's good Jesuit friend wrote, Tolkien and the Art of the Parable, um, well, in that essay, he makes the connection between fairy stories and and parables. And he mm. says that we can find a lot of um, synergy. That is what we can say of one, uh, we can say of the other. And uh, Tolkien was uh, kind of conscious of the unbaptized roots of fairy, he said. And so maybe he was trying to say fairy stories were really kind of a, a, a nascent version of the New Testament parable. And so he makes this connection and he says, what you, what you've said about parable and the parables of Jesus, you can also say a fairy story. And so it's clear that Tolkien may have been influenced by the New Testament parables. And so I would say parable slash fairy stories on one end, yeah, rude allegory on the other end. And the, the, again, the, just to review the differentiation is that the parable slash fairy story alternates between direct and indirect language or allegorical, direct, metaphorical, indirect language, and is revealing through concealing, playing hide and seek. And then the allegory is just, it's just, here it is. I'm laying out all my cards yeah, almost throughout the whole story. Um, Tolkien says that these stories meet in the middle, the fairy story and the crude allegory, you know, they both meet in the truth somewhere. They're both trying to explain a reality or uh, to explain something, but they do it in very different ways. Yeah. Now that we've established how they do that, and we can talk more about it later if you want, but um, I would just say one last thing in summary, that the parable slash fairy story, uh, because it's more metaphorical and less allegorical, is designed to expand your theological horizons. It's designed to teach you new information. Whereas the allegory, the conscious one, on the other end, is there to remind you of what you already know and not to really teach you anything, but to just say, hey, you know your stuff, right? You know your, your doctrine, your creeds. And so there it is. Now, how is this related to myth? Um, I don't know if you want to jump in at all. I, I certainly no. That was that was so good. I'm I'm ready for more. I want to hear some some more about some uh, myth and mythos and yeah. Okay, great. Um, so so uh, thank you. So the Greek term uh, word mythos, uh, you know, usually doubled together with logos. You know, mm-hmm. uh, both of these words originally uh, in the pre-modern ancient sense, according to uh, to scholars who have written about this today, like. Uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, who probably has written about it most popularly, even uh, popular authors who we may not in, a, in an orthodox way see eye to eye with, but like Karen Armstrong, mm-hmm. who writes popular religious literature, uh, writes um, extensively about mythos and logos, uh, has pointed out that these concepts before Plato, before the 5th century BCE and the 4th century BCE, when Plato was alive um, during the time of Alexander, before that, and before the advent of Thucydides and Herodotus and the historians of ancient Greece, um, they really kind of overlapped and intermingled and mythos and logos meant the same thing. And what that thing is, is that they meant true utterance or a a, a true story, a statement, a proposition about fact. Truth, Lewis said, is always about something. Reality is that which truth is about, right? So, um, you know, your philosophy, right? So that's what, uh, um, you know, a mythos is a true utterance. It's a, it's a statement about the way things are. And so I, I say in my book, uh, a la like, um, McGrath and, and many others who've written about this, even Tim Keller, um, that a myth mythos myth is a story about reality mm-hmm. and, uh, McGrath, especially in his recent book, narrative apologetics has connected mythos to, the term meta narrative, which we all know is a grand story about reality, 
So they're the same thing. Yeah. And ancient conception of mythos was basically that poetic statements about truth uh, or about reality and, and imaginative uh, statements, you know, were considered real. And it wasn't just the historical, the rational, the scientific, the empirical. Uh, but when um, Plato started to kind of separate them and Herodotus and Thucydides through their works and, you know, Plato had his opinions about religion and state and things and in history and um, using allegory as a, a stepping stone to get to the truth. But um, that began to change. And then in the enlightenment, but even long before that, you have the Epicurean philosophers who uh, kind of anticipated the enlightenment in the modern conception of myth. Of course, it was um, the exact opposite is a false story. The modern notion of mythos is that it's a false narrative. It doesn't tell us anything about the way the world is. Um, And so you think of people like David Hume, you know, anything who can't be proven empirically or mathematically should be confined to the fire, you know, and human reason is God. And so if we can't, if we can't deduce it uh, empirically, scientifically, rationally, um, you know, it, it ain't true. And if it ain't true, then, you know, it has no bearing on reality. And so that modern conception began to shift. Uh, and you, you know, this um, philosophers uh, like Hume confused metaphysics and epistemology and uh, assumed that you could have an epistemology without a metaphysics first. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, you could start neutrally with here's how we know truth and then build up from there. And you can't do that, uh, honestly. And um, myth changed because of that in the modern world. And so myths became little short stories that, you know, might have a kernel of morality to them, but ultimately um, false. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's the modern conception of myth, sadly. Yeah. 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 um, um, I'm I'm hearing myself myself a little bit bit. on your, on your end. Oh, am I echoing or you're echoing? I'm Um, good now. Yeah, there we go. Better? Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that modern conception, it's funny that hmm. the ancients didn't think they, they thought here's a story of reality. And I love that word meta narrative. A couple of my professors yeah, don't like yeah. that. They think we should just stick to a worldview, but meta uh, meaning, you know, beyond, or, you know, think of metaphysics, what's beyond physics or what undergirds physics and exactly. meta narrative is this grand overarching 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 story by which you can make sense of the world. Exactly. And if, if that's the conception, then we all have this meta narrative. If you're a, if, if you're a, a you know a, a naturalistic determinist, you mm-hmm. think that the whole world is just matter in motion. You know, you you have a, a grand scheme of how we got here, and then you try to build up. You know, what what should we do? And you have a a mythos. You have this this conception of the world, and it's yeah. it's funny that I, I understand it a little bit, right? Because some of these myths, you you look back and you can read. If you're Jordan Peterson, you can read into all sorts of, you know, true statements into them. Some of them seems like, yeah, it's just, that's that's ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some are just are what people call just so stories. This, you know, you can mm-hmm. look at the the uh, Genesis and here's the this is a just so story, kids. This is how the serpent lost his legs, um, <laughs> and you can you can make that you know a childish little story, and it makes it it seems conceivable. Yeah, that's just a myth, sure. right? But yeah. I love this grander conception of, of mythos, of myth, of uh, worldview, of meta narrative, and, and something that was interesting to me to find in your work was this narr- narrated worldview. Can mm-hmm. you explain uh, what you mean by that? Certainly. Yeah, uh, I picked this up. Um, really, I've been uh, soaking in Alistair McGrath for the last several years, and he was just really instrumental for helping me find the philosophical verbiage to uh, structure the arguments of my book. And 
Um, I, I know that he's taking his cues from several other scholars and we'd have to chase down some bibliographies here. I always like to say where I'm getting things from, you know, I know sure. a lot of scholarly listeners. So um, he's written a lot about it, but a, a lot of popular authors today are writing about this concept of, excuse me, myth slash meta narrative as um, narrated worldview. That is a myth should be understood as a person's fundamental orientation and view of reality, which is what a worldview is mm-hmm. the answer to, you know, those five basic questions, um, but told through an indirect uh, mythical, that is narrative way. That is it's it, yeah. your, your view on where we come from, who we are, what is truth, what is meaning, what is right and wrong and the values of good and bad and where we're going when we die and, and where is history going. Those um, overarching sweeping questions uh, are told in, the, in a narrative form, mm-hmm. right? And so that's your worldview, but that's all propositional stuff and that argumentative, straightforward, discursive, propositional, logical way of arguing things is, is really good. I mean, you think of William Lane Craig, he's the master of that, mm-hmm. but it, it's, um, it's sometimes it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know Paul Gould has, has written about this too, you know, that we, we need those uh, appeals to the imagination. It, it's just sapping to have too much of that. And so this concept of myth uh, as narrated worldview uh, kind of addresses that, you know, can't we say this in a more creative, colorful way? And uh, yeah, we can, we do it all the time, right? If I were to just, you know, talk to a buddy or I talk to my students all the time and I say, well, just tell me, tell me where you think we come from, you know, like, well, where I was born. I'm like, no, no, no. You know, like, just tell me a story. Tell me, you know, have you ever wondered about why we're, you know, here rather than not? And people will start telling stories. And, and yet in those stories, there are unfolded truths. Yeah. And, and that's, we do it all the time. So yeah. I think that's a, a great way to look at mythos that brings in that ancient conception that we talked about and does not confuse truth with factuality or, or, or epistemology and metaphysics, right? That there are many ways to speak truth about the way things are. And it's not just limited to those, um, you know, naturalistic uh, assumptions that so many people assume today are the only ways to know truth. And so I think it um, it honors the metaphysical side and the physical side, right? Myths myths do that. They uh, they honor both sides. Yeah, uh, supernatural and the natural. Yeah, I, I love that distinction you were making um, between between worldview and meta narrative. I see that play out in um, systematic theology and like biblical theology, for instance. So systematic theology is you're you're looking at the system of theology, and you can pull out different uh, doctrines. You can look at the doctrine of the incarnation. And you can look at the doctrine of sin or original sin. You can look at these different doctrines systematically, and you can look at the biblical um, phenomena that, that back them up. Or mm-hmm. you can look at biblical theology, which traces themes uh, mm-hmm. his, historically through the Bible as God has progressively revealed himself. And you can see the biblical meta narrative, uh, which is creation. I, I would say creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And that's our grand yeah. story. Yeah. Yep. And so within there, you say, well, okay, well, what do you mean by redemption? Okay, well, now we need to we need some systematic theology. We need to pull out, uh, right. you know, redemption. We need to pull out, uh, you know, what what is the uh, the theology of the cross? And we need to go into that kind of stuff. But so yep. you need you need both, just as you need a worldview. You need propositional truths which are encoded in this meta narrative. I love Perfect. that. I think it's a, a helpful conception yeah. for listeners. Yeah, I, I do. I do too. And I've been greatly helped and nourished by it in my own walk with Christ. And, and like I said, I mean, the, the work of McGrath today, I mean, he's just written some exceptional work. So uh, everyone um, 
should really look into his book. So his most recent book, um, or maybe it's not the most recent, but I think it was one of the most recent books. He, he writes so many, but he writes narrative, yeah, he does. Narrative apologetics is really a great book and it's all about uh, what, what I've done here. And so it, it's also cultural apologetics, right? It's using narrative and, and the power of myth to appeal to the imagination and the heart and, and the mind through it. And yeah. it's, uh, it's great what you just said. And so, yeah, I think, um, we do need both though. You can't, you can't have too much mythos and, and no logos because obviously they overlap and the word mythology in Greek itself is a compound word that shows you the truth of that. Right. Uh, a mythology is a person's narrated worldview. It, it, it combines overlapping epistemologies and ways of knowing truth uh, about the world we live in, uh, in propositional, straightforward, rational ways. And then in those more indirect uh, means and, yeah, you can't really pick – you can't pit them against each other. You shouldn't, I should say. Yeah. Um, but people often do. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I think that uh, that can bring us right into what I what – another interesting point that I found in your book. Uh, there was mm-hmm. a lot, but another one was uh, the yeah. narratival criteria for judging between worldviews and religions. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you explain, like, there's – you got you lay out some criteria or or you, you – yeah, you explain a little bit how little narratival bit, yeah. criteria – can help us in picking and choosing uh, which worldview is true. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do a little bit. I wish that I had spent a little bit more time like with a, a list as Doug Gruthius has done. Um, mm-hmm. Apologies if I've mispronounced his name. I feel that I have. but I don't know if anyone knows how to pronounce that dude's name. <laughs> <laughs> well, he and I are in the same boat then because I, I get people that always make mine a little bit more exotic. It's like Jezuski, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, he threw his <laughs> knee in there. That's that's good. I like it. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he's he's got like a list. And you know, I always find lists are very helpful. And so we talk about criteria. Uh, and I like the way you worded this in your outline. And so I, I kind of said, oh, you know, I should probably revisit some of those things I wish I had said in the book. But what I do say in the book is that a, um, a religion and the myth that goes with the religion, i.e. the worldview, mm-hmm. uh, should be judged by its ability to make sense of all the data of reality. And this is something that across the board, all apologists in every niche are talking about. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say I talk about uh, that's a big thing is that a worldview has to answer um, questions of origin and identity. And I took this cue from Jeff Myers, who, uh, you know, Ravi, when he was alive, Zacharias also had, I think, four questions. And each apologist has their own way of wording it, but it basically is the same. It's where we come from, who we are, definition of what a human is for teleologically. Mm-hmm. What is the purpose of life? What is truth? Is it subjective, objective? It's a bit more complicated than that. What is right and wrong? Where are we going? And so I think firstly, so those are my five questions that I usually use. Origin, identity, meaning, morality, destiny. Hmm. I'm not the first to do it. A worldview has got to explain those. It's got to explain them well. It's got to ring true with um, existential, subjective uh, intuitions. It's also got to ring true of, of logic, laws of logic, which are not, you know, you can't pick up laws of logic and leave them. If you don't like them, they're laws, right? right. Like the law of gravity. So you, um, you've got to obey them whether you like them or not. Um, so I think obviously it, it's got to address those and it's got to fit in logically with the world as we know it. Um, I think um, another thing I just pointed out here, I'm just looking through a, a worldview's got to cohere. The story's got to make sense within itself. And then that story, that coherent story has also got to correspond Mm. Uh, to, uh, using kind of Aristotle's correspondence theory that most apologists kind of assume um, it's got to correspond with the way things are. 
uh, in lived out ways. It's got to make sense of history. It can't be too much mythological. Now, one of the things that Lewis and Tolkien wrote about Christianity is that it is a, like every other religion. It has that mythic quality. But the one big difference is that unlike Osiris and Balder and Adonis and the other dying and rising gods is that mm. this is a historical story. We have archaeological evidence and historical textual evidence. And it's got to it's got to have some factual adequacy. Doug Gruthius says um, he says existential viability, which we've talked about. It's got to answer those questions. And I think these are some good things to start thinking about, about what are the narratival criteria for judging between worldviews. The big one for me though, and I'm saving this one for the end is I've been thinking a lot about this and I hope it makes sense is that just take Christianity, uh, the Christian myth, that is the Christian meta narrative has to be able to make sense of other worldviews. Absolutely. I'm so glad and, you said that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glad that I've been really praying and thinking on it lately because it's really been affecting me and I'm thinking, wow, let me turn that around. Like we have to have an objective criteria here. So we can't just say, Christianity has to do this. Buddhism has to be able to do it. Can Islam and Buddhism or secular humanism take take any non-Christian worldview? Can these worldviews explain the existence of Christianity mm-hmm. and themselves? And the answer is, I don't think so. Not when you stand them up to extreme scrutiny. Um, Islam especially has a really unique relationship between those two. But if your worldview, your theory of life, your hypothesis about the way things are, your narrative that you live in can't explain the existence of other worldviews, uh, then I think it fails as a, as a test. So I think yeah, that's the yeah. big one. Yeah. I love that. I, love I, that. See, I, see, I see so much, uh, overlap, overlap between, I'm, there we go. Yeah. I'm, 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 I see, uh, so much overlap between, uh, the, the narratival approach and some philosophy as well. So uh, in, in philosophy, uh, in epistemology, there's like particularism and there's methodism. And in particularism, you look at all the all the facts. You got all these facts together and you try to come up with a theory that makes sense of these facts. We, we, do, we do that in science as well. Good science will try to come up with a theory to explain as much of the phenomena as, as it can. And then you have the Methodists who they, they go method first. And they mm-hmm. want to say, well, I have this method and then we can see if we do actually know all these data points. Mm-hmm. And so I think what, what's interesting about this narratival uh, a- approach to other religions is exactly what you're saying. If you if your theory is a methodistic approach that starts with the method first and can't fit in all the data points, then there's something missing, especially if a competing view can mm-hmm. fit in everything. And exactly. And Lewis talked about that as well with other religions, how if you have Christianity, you can make sense of other religions. If you don't have Christianity, you can't make sense of any of them. So glad and, you brought that up. Yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah. 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 And so it's I, I it's exciting for me because mm-hmm. instead of saying, well, now there's all these other different religions and you know that should mess with you. You think that yours is right. You say, mm-hmm. well, actually on mine, we can make sense of why there's other religions. We can make sense of why there's the the corn king who rises and dies. We can make sense of this rising and dying, uh, dying and rising motif, because yeah. Yeah. on Christianity, that's the greatest story ever told. That's the meta narrative yeah. that rings true to all of us. And so every religion is going to have to have some kind of rising and dying motif all the way down to a Jackie Chan movie. You know, Jackie Chan has to get beat up yeah. first before every good hero. That's wow. why Superman was no good until kryptonite came along. My God, you, you have yeah. to have this, you know, it's God's yeah. meta narrative. And of course, every worldview is going to have to make sense of that because we, wow. it's in us. We see it in the yeah. fall. You know, the trees die and they come back to life. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's the greatest wow. story. 
That was rousing. And uh, I, I'm, I'm with you, man, 100%. I, I couldn't agree more. That's why um, I really took to that kind of part of the research. And yeah. uh, I think you you just explained it brilliantly. Um, and I love the connection to the, the, the film, too, because it makes sense. All of our obsession with these stories and uh, the exiled and returning king is yes. another motif. I think, you know, the Arthurian legends always touched me as a kid in my heart and and uh, something I couldn't quite put my finger on. So that's good stuff. And I, I think that's it. And um, what I was going to say, what you remind me about uh, particularism, I think, uh, I think this matches up with what McGrath says, because he's a scientist as well, mm-hmm. uh, where he says it's the inference to best explanation. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds more like an abductive approach to, yep. uh, and I think that's what Holmes, Sherlock Holmes does. Everybody thinks he was more deductive, but I think yeah. it was abductive is what he was more famous yeah, for. It's uh, it's d- deductive, uh, uh, yeah. Watson. And it's like, well, it's abductive, dear Watson. Yeah. 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 We should change that. Somebody should really uh, tap somebody on the shoulder about that. But I think that's what I'm getting at is it's more, um, it's more of an abductive approach. And uh, like I said, I think there are a lot of great scholars today who are pioneering this, uh, narratival criteria for worldviews and, and their religions. And so it's, um, it's a very uh, big field right now. It's, yeah. It seems like a lot of people are working in that. I just mentioned a book by Benson Fraser, who uh, his whole book is about that. It's about indirect communication. And um, he gets into that. And I think he uses the work of uh, Kierkegaard uh, hmm. to, to explain that, who wrote um, about it as well. So anyway, great topic. I uh, hope, hope that answered what you were looking for. A little yeah. Bit. Well, and I think it leads right into uh, a little bit more of your, your stuff on middle earth. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about whether Tolkien was a Christian apologist and, and yeah, yeah, he was, he was more indirect, he was more modest. Um, but let's talk about, you know, how, how does the realism of middle earth, how does it have anything to do with, with Christianity? Yeah. So I, I, compile several lines of argument throughout the book and you have to kind of piece it together. Uh, I don't have them all in one place, but in the introduction, I talk about the existence of types, which are things or, or events or themes that God puts into place that point to the antitype, the thing that they signify, which it just so happens in our tradition is the great archetype that draws all things to himself. And that's Jesus. Um, I, I think that's one way that the imagery of the Lord of the Rings leverages uh, you know, these, these images that are also found in the Bible and in other myths, uh, yeah. like Arthurian myths I mentioned, and the exiled and returning king is a very powerful one. It's a universal one, uh, and it's a very effective heart myth. It really, something about it, Peter Kreft wrote uh, pretty movingly uh, and dramatically about it in one of his books, where he said, something in us longs to give a king our allegiance, and it yeah. really moves us and affects us. And I'm like, wow, I think that's what I've always wanted somebody to say that I either didn't have the courage to say myself or didn't know that that's what I wanted to say, but that's how this story moved me. And um, I think so. So the types, the imagery, the symbols uh, in, in the story uh, are very biblical. And as we know, God as King in the Bible is one of the big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way I think the realism of uh, middle earth has anything to do with it being Christian is via the types found in the story uh, and their co- degree of correspondence to the archetype, right? And so the Bible has certain types that the Lord of the Rings also employs, and I think that all points to Jesus. And so that um, connects us to the realism part. Well, the Bible uh, and the authors of the Bible, under the guidance uh, and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believe that this story, the story of Israel, is a microcosmic story of all of our stories, the story of humanity. 
And that's another way of saying it's the story of reality itself and the way things are. And so any story, i.e. Lord of the Rings, that borrows types or images mm -hmm. and metaphorical allusions to this same story, uh, and I'll give you some other examples here in a second, is going to be realistic because of what the Bible claims. The Bible's already claiming through the Holy Spirit, through the direction of God, that this is the story of the way things are. And any story that has those uh, same kinds of feel. So one other example would be the same plot. And you mentioned it earlier, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or, or, or restoration, as some scholars say. By the story having that very clearly, and redemption as being the return of this exiled king in particular, it really creates a lot of reminders to the biblical story and thus to the story of the, the way things really are. And yeah. so I think that's how through multiple steps, Middle Earth feels real because it has that incarnate Christian worldview or myth inside it. And it points us to the world outside us. And we feel like we're really part of that story that God has, has put us in. And that's because we are. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. There's, there's more, but that's good for now. Well, I, I love that because, um, I work with a lot of young dudes and a lot of young dudes love listening to Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. And I, I like it too, man. Uh, I'm a young dude, youngish. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so Peterson talks about that in like how um, Harry Potter, you know, why is Harry Potter mm -hmm. so uh, important? Well, because she's gotten the, uh, the archetypes, right. And so mm -hmm. Peterson has this whole theory because he's a, a union. So he's following these archetypes and, and Jung, you know, I, I would say he stole from the Christian worldview uh, in, in following these archetypes. But so we would say, I, I think what, what you've said is that Tolkien is getting the archetypes right, but not mm -hmm. because of the collective unconscious, because we're all we all have this in our in our collective psyche, but rather right. because he's following from the inspired archetypes. So we have mm -hmm. archetypes out here in the world that we can acknowledge and experience and we can see why this movie did well and this one did poorly because it messed up the archetypes. But then we have this book that's been inspired by God with his inspired yep. archetype saying, this is the theme of reality. And then yep. maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems as if maybe Tolkien's uh, universe is a mm -hmm. type that's pointing to the, the anti-type of the Bible. Yeah. That I, I think, yeah. I mean, what, what it's um, so a type, the way we trace it to uh, the correspondence that it has to the archetype is how strong that type is going to be on the Christian mm -hmm. worldview of things. And so I think that uh, what we see is, and how I word it in the book, is that Tolkien's parabolic novel or parable is about what the gospel or Jesus's parables are about, meaning they're both pointing to the story of the way things are, Yeah. right? And so I, that's, I think, what we're trying to say. I think we're both saying it in different ways. But yeah, is that the... Um, the types in the Lord of the Rings point not only to types outside the Bible, but inside the Bible and are richer for that. And, and it contributes to that, just that great degree of realism that it has. Yeah. And as you look at those types, you can see that they draw and share in the body of the real archetype to a great degree. So long as we're using Jesus and the Bible as our model and our measuring stick, we're going to see that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, that's awesome. Another thing that, that struck me, which was completely brand new to me um, uh, in reading your book, was you say that the Hobbit and the Silmarillion act kind of like the Old Testament. Yeah, do you like that? It was It was like, dude, I'd never, ever considered that. But it's so interesting. And it, it gave yeah. me a different view of the Old Testament because I'm viewing mm. it as those, you know, it, it helped me understand insofar as that's true. It helped me understand 
a little bit more about the Old Testament uh, mm-hmm. as preparing the way for you know the New Testament. And yeah. then, you know, Lord of the Rings would be like a New Testament parable. Precisely, which is itself a miniature proclamation of the gospel itself, right? And so, yeah, w- this was pointed out and, and wasn't really developed uh, very much in his book because it was about the Inklings in general. But I got the idea from uh, researching and I, I said, you know, somebody ought to really build on this. And, and, and I started to, um, and that became the book. But um, it was a uh, an English author. I'm trying to remember his name. Christopher Scarf has a book about the Inklings and their works and um, the, the theme of kingship in them. And he says, um, and, and I've just a parallel to this, I've realized that Richard Hayes and, and the way that he tells us in his books to interpret the new Testament and the old Testament, how they relate to each other. I, I noticed the synergy when I, um, I sat back and I looked at this and I said, wow, the way we read our Bible should is most important of course, but it can, it's clear that Tolkien was influenced by this. And I think this is the way he wants us to read the Lord of the Rings. Hmm. And then I went to Scarf's book and he said something like this. He said, the, uh, the act of looking back at the Numenorean kings and the, the Dwarvish kingdoms and all the, the backstory stuff, i.e. the Silmarillion, the Hobbit, uh, is parallel to the act of looking back uh, in, from the New Testament to the Old Testament. And I thought, you know, that does make sense. And then I looked in Tolkien's letters. And what do you know? He says, quote, Part of the attraction, I think, of the Lord of the Rings is the uh, glimpses uh, in the backstory, right? That you can see these uh, glimpses to a vast history stretching into the background of the Lord of the Rings. And it makes you want to go there and kind of find out, well, what is, you know, who is um, Melkor or who was the first Dark Lord and where does Sauron come from? And uh, who is uh, Baron and Luthien that Aragorn is singing about? And you're like, I don't know who these people are. Nobody's introduced them to me. And he's right. That attraction, it draws us and makes us want to read those other books. Yeah. And then when we look back to them, we start to make connections between Baron and Luthien, which was an elf maiden, Luthien and a man, and Arwen and Aragorn. And you're like, oh, okay. Now I see that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it's, I think, of course, the thing I, I shy readers away from is saying, that the Silmarillion and the Hobbit, Silmarillion and the Hobbit are exactly telling the exact same story as the Old Testament because they're not. Right. right. But they're um, they contain the same themes and the same types and imagery that you find in the Old Testament, especially that that king that you hope is going to be this great king. And in the writings of Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets, you get this expectation that you know the son of David's going to come back, and you get that in the story of the dwarves a little bit. Uh, you get the story of the fall. You get the story of creation in Tolkien's uh, Old Testament books, and you get it obviously in uh, in the Old Testament. So, um, anyway, you start making these connections. They're never one to one, so they're not incredibly allegorical, right? But they are really unmistakable. Uh, and I think Tolkien said it best. He said, "You know, all of this was really Christian in the revision, not consciously. You know, when I was writing it, I didn't do this consciously, but in the revision of my works, he said." it all kind of came together. Yeah. And it's a very Christian work. So I love that. And I, I love, um, you, you mentioned Hayes. We, we, we read him in, in seminary and stuff, but it, it's striking. It's interesting thinking about reading, uh, the Hobbit and the Silmarillion in light of the Lord of the Rings, just like reading the old Testament in light of new Testament. And you start to see, all that time I put into reading Chronicles. Oh, it's starting to make some more sense. If I would have paid attention a little bit more, um, maybe I would have seen it, but I have this key, you know, I have this new Testament key for interpretation. And when I read Jesus's lineage, I go, Holy cow, Rahab, that she wasn't just some minor character in this thing. She's in 
the Lord's lineage. Holy cow. And you start yeah. to see the significance of, mm -hmm. of all these events taking place. And you get to see the great grand narrative that, that God is the storytelling God. He's yep. not just like this efficient uh, uh, computer, computing machine. He's not just this efficient chess player. He mm -hmm. is a grand storyteller who had all this in mind and who is directing and weaving history uh, yep. and, and telling a story with history, which exactly. is fantastic. His story, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, his story. Yeah. And that's it. Um, it's so true. And I think this parallel act of looking back, I mean, remember Tolkien said what he just said about the revision, that it was a Christian story in the revision after he looked back on it. So I think mm -hmm. that itself is a clue. That's why in my book, I invite readers to start with Lord of the Rings and then yeah. to look back on the, uh, the the prequel books. And I think that's parallel to uh, what the risen Jesus tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. And he, and he says, you know, then he took them through Moses and the prophets to show them, you know, all the, where he was in those scriptures and, and he invites us to have that retrospective hermeneutic that uh, is uh, so crucial uh, in the writing of Hayes, for example. So um, anyway, I think it's a good way to read uh, Tolkien's uh, tome, right? And, yeah. and it uh, makes it that just that intertextuality between his books and the, the intertextuality between the New and Old Testament makes a resemblance to the Bible and, and thus to the, the bigger story we're a part of. Yeah. So I think that's another thing that really says, wow, this sounds familiar, you know? Yeah. And that, that just continues that sense of, of realism that we feel like uh, along with, you know, he's a fantastic writer and someone oh, yeah. said something like uh, you, every step you take in middle earth uh, has history, you know, you're stepping on yeah. like someone's bones or something like that. And, yeah. Oh, this yeah. was where Melkor fought this battle or something. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, minefield of, of all sorts of references and uh, he is a wonderful writer and a lot of people can't stand the 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 extended uh landscape descriptions and the the trekking over the dells and the hills and stuff mm -hmm. but i love it i mean it just yeah. immerses you uh and makes you think you're in a familiar place and then the shock comes and you're like wow this doesn't this isn't home yeah <laughs> so it's great uh, he is a great writer yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, man, this has been awesome. We've gone into yeah. all sorts of literary uh, uh, genres and uh, tools and all sorts of great stuff. Thanks so much for all your time, man. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. I had fun. Yeah. So uh, for all the listeners right now, go grab this book. There's We talked about a lot, but there's a lot more in the book. There's a lot more uh, specifics. There's a lot more uh, on how the gospel relates to um, – to the return of the king that we could have gone into that we, we don't have time for um, yep. go, go buy the book it's it's yeah. a good book i recommend it tell your friends about it uh michael i'd love to have you on again sometime to talk talk uh, Tolkien, lord of the rings all Please. sorts of good stuff like that anytime man thank you so much again awesome well this has been uh parker's pensies we could talk about it more hopefully lord willing we will someday but for now it's gonna have to do it as always all glory to god